the former and forgetting the latter. If you could try to think hard, the biographer pleaded. His patience had been worn down over the last few weeks of interviews. He was beginning to regret embarking on his project, the Bryant and May Casebook of Peculiar Crime. No one had written about London's Peculiar Crimes Unit's legendary detective team before, and he could see why. Nineteen seventy-three, let's see. Bryant raised his watery azure eyes to the ceiling and thought for a moment. It was the year we joined the common market, although I don't think anyone noticed. The Foreign Secretary, Sir Alec Douglas Hume, had drawn up paperwork for the agreement, and I recall it had to be accepted on the fifteenth floor landing of the Common Market Headquarters in Brussels because there was no one left in the office. Luckily, the building's concierge remembered to run up a Union Jack. An inauspicious start to the year, I thought. Bryant's memory veered between two points, hopelessly vague and absurdly detailed. I meant, could you remember the case, not the year? Uh, Do you have any details about the investigation? asked the biographer. We had a terrible heat wave, said Bryant, providing the question with an entirely different answer. President Nixon had started a second term, even though the Watergate investigation was well underway by then. There were still anti-war protests in Trafalgar Square. Spiro Agnew was done for tax evasion, wasn't he? And Gerald Ford started to fall over a lot. I'm pretty sure Elton John released Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which had Funeral for a Friend and Princess Diana's memorial song, Candle in the Wind, on it. Isn't that strange? Bryant pursed his lips, thinking. Picasso died at ninety-one, a ripe old age. We were involved in the so-called Cod War with Iceland over fishing rights. It was a dreadful year for haircuts. My partner John had gone in for sideburns. Not a good look, but he was having a midlife crisis. At least that's what we call them now. Back then it was known as a breakdown. What else happened? I think the Bahamas got their independence, because I remember laughing when a canopy dropped on Prince Charles's head during the handover ceremony. The ceiling of the Shaftesbury Theatre fell in as well, and hair had to close. Such a shame. I loved that show. Let the sunshine in. What a nice sentiment. There was the IRA bombing campaign, of course, and half the country was shut down by industrial action. Strikes everywhere. The unions had more power in those days. We had blackouts, and everyone stockpiled candles. There was a fuel crisis. We all had to queue for petrol. Arab terrorists attacked an American jet at Rome Airport, didn't they? And I bought some new shoes from Mr. Byright, but the soles came off. Uh, Yes, said the biographer, exasperated. But can you remember anything at all about the crime? Well, of course. I kept it all here in my notebook. You mean you had it written down all the time? The biographer was aghast. Yes, but I transcribed it in a hieroglyphic code. 
Bryant riffled through the pages, puzzled. I wrote everything in code back in those days. I don't know why I bothered. My handwriting's illegible. I numbered all the translation keys and kept them together for safekeeping in my landlady's cow. I'm sorry. She kept a china cow in her kitchen cabinet, an Edwardian milk jug. Hardly an heirloom, but it served its purpose. So you can decipher the notes? No, she threw it away when the Queen Mother died. I have no idea why. Wait, wait. I do remember something. The newspapers referred to it as the case of the 77 clocks. There was quite a fuss at the time. We got into terrible trouble, but you probably know all about that. No, I don't, the biographer admitted. You don't? Dear fellow, it was one of our most truly peculiar cases. Hardly seems possible looking back. You have to remember that we had no computers in those days, no mobile phones. Most equipment was still mechanical. Typewriters and carbons and telexes, it slowed you down. The whole awful business could have been so easily avoided. Instead, there were frightful deaths, and I had to deal with that appalling family. I remember it as if it was yesterday. This was patently untrue, for Bryant remembered very little at all about yesterday. Why don't you tell me all about it? the biographer suggested with an air of apprehension. Lights out. She recognized the symptoms at once. The stipple of sweat in the small of her back ice heat prickling her forehead, skittering panic in the pit of her stomach. As she walked past her, she thought, This is absurd. It can't harm me. But beneath her mind's voice ran another dark and urgent, It's not the night, but what waits in it. The sun had barely set, but the road ahead was indistinct in the fading light. She refused to consider what might be out there. The Prince of Darkness is a gentleman hissed the voice, a phrase recalled from her school days. She had no intention of meeting the prince this evening, and quickened her pace, not daring to look back. The clouds of night opened like ink blossoming in water, threatening to overtake her. Blackbirds raggedly skirted the trees, taking measure of the rising wind. For as long as she could remember, Sam Gates had been terrified of the dark. The cause of this nyctophobia was beyond the reach of recollection, perhaps some early trauma at the top of the stairs. Her mother accused her of having an overactive imagination. She made it sound like a harmful thing. Others would have seen misted fields on either side of the road, bare elm trees blurring in the dusk. Sam saw demons swarming. She tried to read her watch, but it was too dark to see the face. Damn Nicholas and his country weekend, she thought. If he'd shown some warning sign of his intentions, she would never have come in the first place. The man should have been wearing a red toggle, pulled to inflate ego, like a life jacket. His personality had changed the moment he'd realised that she wasn't going to bed with him. Now it was almost dark, and she was stuck in the deserted Kent countryside on a Sunday night without a car, in the freezing cold, with an irrational dread nipping at her, goading her into a trot. 
She was a town girl, used to city lights and cars and sirens and people. She wanted to hear Radio Caroline on her transistor. Instead, it was so quiet you could hear a cow break wind five miles away. Where the hell was everybody? She thought back over the weekend and the mistake she had made in accepting his invitation. On Saturday morning they had motored down to the lodge, his Leslie Phillips expression, as if they were living in the fifties, in the red MG that kept stalling, its roof folded back to admit the freezing country air. The lodge, a damp Victorian monstrosity situated on the far side of Detling, had been designed in such a way that the watery warmth of the winter sun was excluded from it through every phase of the earth's rotation. The ground floor was surrounded by tall, wet nettles, the brickwork obscured by fifty types of reeking brown fungus. The rooms were virtually devoid of furniture. There was no central heating. Nicholas's family might have breeding, but they obviously had no money. The upkeep of such property, he'd explained, was staggering, and his parents preferred to stay in their Knightsbridge flat. It didn't take her long to realize that Nicholas used the empty house for sex. One look at the bedrooms was all she needed to know. Adult magazines, wine bottles, mirrors and candles, a lad's pathetic idea of what would excite women. The blinds were drawn tight in all the upper rooms, and probably remained so throughout the year. Her partner's dinner conversation had consisted of college tales laden with sexual innuendo. He was a different man on his home ground, all smirk and swagger, and she hated it. It was as if she had ceased to be his friend and become his quarry. The second time he brushed...